0: Good morning, everyone. Just come back into the room and get settled. On behalf of Spirit Rock, I'm very happy to welcome Stephen and Martine Batchelor here today. They do have, or rather Stephen has, a new book coming out. I have a visual aid, Confession of a a Buddhist Atheist, and that comes out in March of 2010. And we do offer several of their other books in the bookstore. If you have any trouble finding them, you can ask me or one of the volunteers here today. I just have a few logistical announcements. Uh, As you know, there are bathrooms in the foyer, but there are also two additional bathrooms in either of the trailers on either side of the meadow. Um, We do have a retreat closing up the hill today, so it's a rare opportunity for you to travel up the hill and see the upper retreat area if you haven't before. However, we are asking that you only do so at lunch and at the end of the day. And please do be mindful of the yogis and the staff members who are up there preparing for the next retreat, which starts tomorrow, which Stephen and Martine are leading. So without any further ado, again, I welcome Stephen and Martine and enjoy your day.
1: Uh, thank you very much, uh, Grania. And for the staff here at Spirit Rock and the Teacher Council and others who have made all of this possible for us. Can you hear me at the back? Yes? No? Yes. Okay, good. Um, I'm going to open by uh, introducing the theme of the day, which is that of uh, the secular Buddha whether or not that's the reason you're here, to find out more about that, or some other reason we, of course, don't know. Uh, Many years ago, when I lived in England, I was once invited to a conference hosted by the Islamic uh, Centre in Oxford. And the idea was to bring together representatives of the different faith uh, groups in Britain Um, obviously Muslim as the host, uh, different Christian denominations, uh, Jewish denominations, Hindus and uh, Buddhists. I think I was actually the only Buddhist. And the idea uh, was to come up with a, uh, a declaration, a joint declaration, in which people of faith would make a Uh, explicit uh, stand, together, against the rise of what was called godless secularism. (laughs) (laughs) And we spent the day, there were probably two or three hundred people at the meeting, Uh, many different uh, people spoke, representing different points of view, a declaration was drafted, which was problematic because a great deal of it was f- phrased in God language and as a Buddhist that was not easy to necessarily affirm or even make much sense of. But what struck me by the end of the day was that I felt less and less a part of such a, a movement, such a declaration. And I came to realize that actually I rather liked godless secularism. (laughs) I didn't see it as so intrinsically problematic as many of the more traditional uh, faith-based representatives. And I think we perhaps need first to step back and ask what we mean by uh, secular or secularism. It's very often a term that is used as the uh, polar opposite of what may be called religious, a religious perspective and a secular perspective. The term secular, however, is often simply left as equivalent to non-religious. But if we look at the etymology of the word, We find that secular comes from the Latin word seculum, which means this age or this world, this place, this time, as opposed to a religious or or spiritual perspective that sees this world or this place or this time as only a small uh, parcel of what is a much a larger sense of life, one that extends potentially to eternity. And this life is seen really as a a preparation for either eternal heaven or hell in the monotheistic traditions or in Buddhism and Hinduism, um, uh, a potentially endless succession of death and rebirth. So the word secular, for me, refers specifically to a perspective that has its entire concern with uh, this world, this age in which we live. So when I use a word, an expression like uh, the secular Buddha, then I'm talking of a, a Buddhism, a practice of the Dhamma, that is concerned entirely with this world and has no interest in what may or may not follow uh, our own death or perhaps even the death of this world at some end point in, in cosmic time. So it's a shift of emphasis which is in a sense at odds with a great deal of religious thought that places the entire concern here and now. And I don't see this as somehow an abandonment of the primary concerns of, uh, of human value, whether that be religious or philosophical, that the entirety of one's practice as a Buddhist is focused on acknowledging and responding to the suffering that we experience on this world here and now, and that, in a sense, is all we can be. Act, and that, in a sense, is all we can really be certain of. Whatever might occur after death is speculative. Um, we have no uh, hard evidence whatsoever that there is, in fact, a future life. That some uh, bit of this person, some spiritual bit or some subtle bit of consciousness, will escape from the dissolution of the body and the brain at death and find in some other realm another life. Now, we can also see this in terms of acknowledging that this world, this seculum, may be the only one there ever has been and ever will be. I think one has to really uh, consider that as a real possibility. We have no evidence at all that there is any other life equivalent to our conscious human life that we know now existing elsewhere in the universe. Statistically, it seems likely that there is, I've been told. But in fact, we have no evidence for that whatsoever. And I think this shifting of focus to the, uh, to, to, to the life that has come to uh, exist through the processes of evolution on this blue planet should I feel, or is for me at least, the only thing about which I can be certain and therefore the only object, the only focus of what I would consider to be my spiritual life, my spiritual concern, my moral concern. Now Buddhism, of course, has traditionally been presented to us as a view of the world in which this is just one life among many others. In some of my earlier writings, particularly the book uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs, I suggested that we should have an agnostic view on this particular point. In other words, <coughs> not to affirm or to reject the possibility of some post-mortem existence, but rather to say in all honesty that we simply cannot know or simply do not know what else there might be once we're no longer here. Since then, I've shifted more and more to uh, a a view in which I find any sense of the continuity of life after death uh, essentially incoherent. Uh, I cannot understand how that could possibly be the case. Although, of course, if I'm really pressed up against a wall and told to somehow say where I stand, I do have to accept that I don't know. But given what we do know, about how this human organism evolved, how the brain is intimately tied with all uh, ideas we have of consciousness or mind, I find it extremely difficult to imagine uh, coherently what such a future existence might be. Now this, of course, goes against uh, much of what traditional Buddhism uh, teaches us, whether it be the uh, Theravada tradition that we find in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka which presents the path of the Dhamma as one in which we seek to uh, liberate ourselves finally from the cycle of birth and death itself which is called the condition of the Arahant or whether we see our Buddhism in terms of the Mahayana doctrines of the Bodhisattva uh, one who takes a vow not to Um, enter final nirvana until all sentient beings have been liberated from suffering. In both cases, we are uh, framing our practice and our understanding of what the Buddha taught in terms of a multi-life vision, a multi-life model. When I was training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, many years ago now, I was told repeatedly that if um, if I did not if I value this life more than the lives to come I could not consider myself to be a, a chuba in Tibetan which means a dharma person a buddhist said ilachena chuba min. if you are concerned about this life you're not a practitioner of the dharma so by that definition I'm not a practitioner of the dharma And that was one of the reasons which led me to leave that uh, way of practice uh, because I could not accept such assumptions. Although there is, of course, enormous emphasis in the Mahayana traditions on compassion and loving-kindness, it is still all somehow tied to a multi-life worldview. And from a multi-life perspective, um, I think one is forced into uh, uh, having to accept that even if life on this planet ceased through, let's say, nuclear catastrophe or environmental disaster, at some level it wouldn't really matter because all forms of sentient life would be reborn somewhere else according to their karma. In other words, of course, we should practice as much as we can to cherish life and preserve life. But if it all does end up in catastrophe, we can have that reassurance that nothing will really die. Sentient life will simply get reborn in some other solar system according to the quality of its deeds. Now, in some respect, I therefore feel that the belief in an afterlife, be it a Christian heaven or a Buddhist nibbana, has something almost immoral about it. It uh, prevents us from, or it it leaves an escape route, a wormhole, um, from which we are, are enabled not to give of ourselves totally, 100% to a response to the sufferings that we know for sure occur in this world. Now this thinking has led me more and more back to um, trying to discover and to find out what was the Buddha's take on all of this? What would the Buddha have said were he to suddenly reappear in California today? uh, this has led me not only to an attempt to try to reconstruct the Buddha's life in the historical, social, economic conditions of his time, to try to recover something of Siddhartha Gautama's humanity, what was his life like when he lived on earth? And we can reconstruct that in quite some considerable detail much more so than we might expect, in fact. And we find a person here who is very much implicated and involved in the tensions and the conflicts of his family, of the political life of his time, of the religious life of his time. And we find, I think, very much an image of a person who was not merely a spiritual or a religious teacher, um, presenting another path to liberation from saṃsāra, but we also find a man who was uh, deeply concerned with the structures and the organizations of life on this planet here and now. There's a a wonderful parable the Buddha gives, you find it in the Sanyuta Nikaya, where he says uh, that, um, when he gives this parable, of the city he says suppose monks a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path and he would follow it and he would see an ancient city an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks groves ponds and ramparts a delightful place and then that man would inform the king or a royal minister and say know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path and following it I found an ancient city. Renovate that city, Sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city and sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. The Buddha then explains what he means by this metaphor. He says that the the path in the forest that he has uncovered and stumbled across almost is the noble eightfold path travelled by the Buddhas of the past. And the city, the ancient ruined city to which this ancient path led, he compares to the four noble truths in other words he sees the four noble truths which if we think of them as tasks rather than propositions to believe entail fully knowing dukkha suffering letting go of grasping or craving or addiction experiencing the cessation of craving the stopping of craving And that then allowing the creation and the cultivation of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Buddha sees the Four Truths here not as a way for us to realize nirvana, but rather as a, a, a template for another kind of civilization, another kind of city, Remember, city or civitas is the precondition for what we call civilization. In other words, a degree of of human organization, both social, political, economic organization, that can enable people to flourish by increasing divisions of labor, by creating conditions for the emergence of culture, for philosophy, for religious and spiritual practice. Uh, for for the arts and so on. From this metaphor we have a picture of the Buddha as someone who sees his teaching, who sees his path, the Eightfold Path, leading not to nirvana, the cessation of suffering, but rather seeing his path as leading to another kind of, of city, civilization, another way of living together on this earth. And the more that I, <coughs> I go back to these Pali texts and seek out passages that seem in some sense anomalous, some senses surprising, that don't seem to conform to the uh, beliefs of most Buddhist, Buddhist orthodoxy, the more I find passages like this that suggest a far more secular emphasis than we may traditionally be used to. One of the um, strategies or means of interpretation that I've adopted is to try to distinguish what we find attributed to the Buddha in this early canon from what was already more or less the world view of people at his time. We have to remember that the doctrine of reincarnation, the doctrine of uh, karma, the doctrine of uh, seeking liberation from the cycle of birth and death, uh, the doctrine of some kind of unconditioned or pristine consciousness, all of these ideas were already in place at the Buddha's time, as we can find if we read uh, some of the older Upanishads, the buruj and the Chandogya Upanishads in particular, which the Buddha, we can see from the canon, was clearly aware of these teachings. So whenever we find uh, in the Buddha's uh, uh, discourses, uh, passages that could just as well have been said by someone within the Brahmanic tradition, we can respectfully put that to one side. And through this process of elimination, we may therefore come closer to what in fact is unique and original and distinctive in what the Buddha said. I'm going to read out a couple of examples, passages that... Jar slightly with what we might expect, perhaps the example of the city, already for some of you was a bit of a surprise. I'd been used to that metaphor, but only the path bit. That's the bit that's often mentioned. I came across this path in the forest. I only recently discovered, by checking the source, that it led to an ancient city. That was a surprise for me. Listen to this passage here. This is from... Uh, Majjama 38, the 38th discourse um, of the middle-length sayings. This concerns a dialogue between the Buddha and a disciple of his, a monk, called Sati, uh, the fisherman's son. And Sati says to the Buddha, As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Buddha, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. And the Buddha says, but what is that consciousness, Sati? And Sati says, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there as a result of good and bad karma or action. And the Buddha says, misguided man. (laughs) To whom have you ever known me to teach the Dharma in that way? Misguided man. Have, in, ha, have I not stated in many discourses that consciousness arises upon conditions, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness? Because he then turns to the, the audience, Consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises, when consciousness arises dependent on eye and forms, it is reckoned as eye consciousness When it arises dependent upon ears and sounds, it is reckoned as audio-consciousness, and so on. Just as fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it burns, when fire depends on logs, it's called a log-fire, when fire depends on grasses, it's called a grass fire, and so on. Now here we have the Buddha um, rejecting the idea that there is some kind of consciousness, as it were, underpinning our experience of the phenomenal world, awaiting, as it were, for something to happen, to be conscious of. For the Buddha, consciousness is seen as um, uh, an emergent property of our phenomenal experience. In other words, consciousness is the consequence of an organism with active senses impacting the world itself. So when, we, when there's an eye organ that's awake and active and uh, in good condition, and light and forms and shapes impact the eye organ we would say strike the retina then there arises consciousness if you close your eyes or if the light goes down or if the shape or form disappears consciousness is no that eye consciousness no longer exists consciousness is an emergent property of a complex organism interacting with the phenomenal world. There's no kind of prior principle of consciousness or awareness that somehow uh, escapes that phenomenal condition. Now again, I think for for many of us who are familiar with uh, Buddhist teaching, that might strike one as slightly um, uh, odd. It, 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 we, we may have very much had the sense, and because of the doctrine of rebirth and reincarnation, because of some of the more mystical teachings in Buddhism that posit a kind of pristine awareness or something, some or some kind of greater consciousness. To read a passage like that might even be slightly uh, disturbing. Here's the Buddha on another uh, well-known, uh, almost utterly central doctrine that of the middle way the middle path the middle path remember he defines in his very first sermon as the the middle path between the extremes of indulgence on the one hand and uh, mortification or self-punishment on the other that's the conventional uh, way we are presented this idea but here we have a passage in the Udana Udana 6.8 for those of you who want to look it up later the Udana is one of the, the shorter collections of teachings that we find in the Kudika Nikaya the body of texts uh, which include the Dharmapada and the Suttanipata and other writings this is the Buddha speaking what has been attained and what is still to be attained, both these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence, or who hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy, and service as the essence, this is one extreme. And those with such theories and such views as There's nothing wrong in indulging sensory desires. This is the other extreme. Both these extremes cause the cemeteries to grow. (laughs) And the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two extremes, some hold back and some go too far. Now, again, we don't expect the Buddha to describe virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy and service as an extreme. In fact, the word, the translation extreme is also slightly misleading. The word in Pali is anta, which means something more like dead end. The, the word anta means, uh, literally means end or limit, or um, uh, horizon, something that uh, constrains or, or limits one's experience. And the middle way, the middle path, is one that does not lead to dead ends. It's not a dead end. It actually goes somewhere. That is lost when we translate these as extremes. The idea, really, is that these are dead ends. The Buddha also calls Mara the devil as antaka in many passages, which means the one who imposes dead ends. So we might understand that psychologically. Um, Egoism, pride, attachment, aversion, grasping, craving, all of these are anta. They're dead ends. They might be forms of psychological activity that appear to be very active and very dynamic, but in the end we find ourselves back where we started, in the same state of frustration, the same state of limitation from which we initially sought to free ourselves. And a great deal of human activity is in in the end a dead end. So the Buddha is suggesting here that his Eightfold Path is one that avoids the dead ends of both worldly indulgence on the one hand In other words, a life dedicated to just getting more and more pleasure and getting rid of whatever we associate with suffering or pain, which, let's face it, is probably what we spend a lot lot of our time doing. And on the other hand, on the other uh, extreme, uh, the dead end of religion, the dead end of um, becoming, as it were, attached to or becoming rather um, overly identified with the precepts and the practices and the beliefs of a religious orthodoxy. Both the world and religion can be dead ends. Buddhism can be a dead end. Uh, And any religion can be a dead end. Rather than liberate us, rather than offer us a, a framework in which our human life can flourish, it begins to restrict it and we become tied down to um, a rather um, uh, excessive uh, commitment to certain truths, to certain doctrines, to certain forms of life and forms of behavior, which become restrictive. Mm -hmm. So the middle way, the Eightfold Path, seems to suggest a way of life that is actually far more challenging than we might uh, expect from the usual definition. In other words, we don't indulge in sensory pleasure, but then on the other hand we don't do self-mortification exercises like standing on one leg for 15 years or staring at the sun, which frankly I don't think anyone of us will be attracted to anyway. (laughs) But rather, in this, in, in this passage here and in others, the Buddha seems to be warning against the uh, excesses of religious life or spiritual life itself. So he's presenting a path that transcends the limits that can be uh, of the world and the limits that can be equally um, uh, 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 realized through the practice of the dharma through the practice of religion through the practice of spirituality let me give you another example this is a passage in which the buddha is having a dialogue with a man called moliya sivaka which literally means sivaka of the top knot in other words he was some sort of ascetic uh, a contemporary of the buddha and he comes to the buddha and he says master Gautama." There are some ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine as this. Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, all that is caused by actions done in the past. What does Master Gautama say about this? Now, what um, (coughs) this... uh, person is presenting is in fact what has become Buddhist orthodoxy in many schools. This is how I was trained uh, as a monk, that our subjective experience, our Vedana, the feeling tone as it's sometimes translated, in other words that whole subjective experience of pleasure and pain and everything in between, that is the consequence of one's past karma, one's past actions. Now, the Buddha replies, and he says, Some feelings, Sivaka, arise here originating from bile disorders. <laughs> 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 and then he, he goes through... Uh, uh, well he, as these texts go, they're always terribly repetitive... Um, and anyway, so, I'll just list all of the things that he says. Some feelings, Sivaka, arise here originating from bile disorders. Some from phlegm disorders. Some from wind disorders. Some from an imbalance of the three. Some are produced by a change of climate. Some are produced by careless behavior. Some are produced by violent assault and some are produced by one's past actions or karma. And then he qualifies this even further. Remember that the first four basically have to do with physical health. Uh, In classical Ayurvedic medicine, which was already practiced at the Buddha's time and continues even today into Tibetan medicine, Health is described as an achievement of balance between the three humours of the body, bile, phlegm and wind. Wind doesn't mean gas. It means uh, prana, energy. And um, to achieve health and for a doctor to heal uh, illness requires um, a re-equilibrium of these three primary humours. So in other words, the Buddha is saying, A great deal of what we experience as pleasure or pain has just got to do with the fact of our physical health uh, or our mental health. Uh, Lung or or wind disorders are in Ayurvedic and Tibetan medicine understood as the basis for all mental uh, disorders like depression and uh, anxiety and so on. But he goes further than this. He says that some feelings arise here originating from such disorders and from climate and from improper care and so on. One can know for oneself. And these things are considered to be true in the world. Now when those ascetics and Brahmins hold a doctrine such as whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful or neither, all that is caused by what was done in the past, they overshoot what one knows by oneself and they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore I say that this is wrong on the part of those ascetics and Brahmins. This passage has caused all sorts of problems uh, for Buddhist commentarial uh, traditions because it is so at odds with what has become a very primary belief within Buddhism, and that is the doctrine of karma as the primary cause of often karma from past lifetimes, uh, that is what determines how we feel here and now. The Buddha is sweeping that all aside, and he's saying, in fact, on the contrary, we need to consider the actual conditions of the body, the actual conditions of our environment, the actual conditions of how we and others behave, affect uh, what is going on with us here and now, our own carelessness or assault from others. His, his, His turn of mind is far more to what we would describe now as an empirical approach, not a metaphysical approach. So the Buddha, when we get back to some of these early passages that are anomalous in terms of what much Buddhist orthodoxy says, we find an approach that, to my mind, strikes me as far more secular in emphasis than religious or metaphysical. The Buddha's pragmatic. Possibly the most um, uh, well-known of the uh, pragmatic teachings of the Buddha and the therapeutic teachings of the Buddha concern uh, his refusal to respond to certain big questions of human life. And these are, is the world eternal? Is the world not eternal? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Is the mind the same as the body? Or are mind and body two different things? After death, does one exist? Or after death, does one not exist? And I think the Buddha was fairly prescient in that these questions, which he formulated nearly two and a half thousand years ago, are just as unsolved today as they were then. (laughs) Uh, At least particularly those concerning the nature of the body and mind. And whether or not there is existence after death or not. And the Buddha refuses to make any declaration at all about such things. He illustrates this with this very famous analogy, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but I'm going to read it out anyway. He's speaking to a man called Malunkyaputta. And he says Suppose, Malunkyaputta, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison and his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. But the man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and the clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I know whether the bow that wounded me was a long bow or a crossbow, until I know whether the shaft of that arrow was a wild or a cultivated wood, until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, until I know whether what kind of arrow it was, whether it was hoof-tipped or curved or barbed or calf-toothed. And all this still would not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, Malunkya Putta, if anyone should say, I will not lead the spiritual life under the Buddha until the Buddha declares to me the world is eternal, not eternal, finite, infinite, and so on, those things would still remain undeclared by the Buddha, and meanwhile that person would die. So the Buddha here, I think, lays out very much the framework for his Dhamma as one that is simply not concerned with answers or giving answers to the big questions of human life. I think nowadays we could even add some others. We could add, is there free will? Is there determinism? This is a one that keeps on cropping up nowadays. We might even say, uh, if, if, if there is a god or if there is not a god. Such questions are not, the Buddha does not refuse to answer them because he says, well, actually, I don't know. That's another story. He doesn't answer them because they are irrelevant. They actually have no bearing whatsoever upon the path that he teaches. Now, this may be very clear. Um, certainly in this Pali text that I've just cited. But, curiously, on many of these points, Buddhist orthodoxy has come to a very clear position on some of these points, particularly the last ones. Nearly all Buddhist traditions, and probably from a time quite shortly after the Buddha, regard mind and body as two separate things. And they kind of have to do that, because otherwise it's very difficult, if not impossible, to explain what it is that gets reborn. If at physical death the mind uh, de- uh, decomposes just as the body does, then there's nothing left to be reborn. You therefore need to posit something, usually some kind of subtle mind, that gets Reborn and carries with it the karma of past lives. So in the Theravada school, in Buddha Gosha, they speak of the Bhavanga Chitta, the rebirth consciousness. In the Tibetan and in the other Mahayana schools, usually you get some form of subtle mental consciousness or you get the 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 foundation consciousness, or you get a subtle mix of mind and energy in the Vajrayana. Nonetheless, something is posited as escaping the collapse and the death of the body. And yet the Buddha is quite clearly saying, don't go there. It doesn't matter. It's not of any primary concern. So, and again, just following on in the same text, the Buddha continues, Therefore, Malunkya Putta. Remember what I have left declared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared? I have declared this is suffering, this is craving, this is cessation of craving, and this is the Eightfold Path. These things I have declared. And why have I done so? Because they are beneficial. They belong to the fundamentals of the brahmacharya, the spiritual life. They lead to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening. That is why I have declared them. So here we come back to the same idea the Buddha declares in the parable of the city. What he has declared are the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths, as we've seen from the parallel of the city, are precisely what constitute the template of a new civilization. In other words, something that exists in this world, a city, he says, that once it is rebuilt, it will become successful and prosperous well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. Now, I'm sure all of us, even if we've only got a fairly um, uh, rough sense of what the Buddha taught, are familiar with the Four Noble Truths. But the Four Noble Truths are very often presented um, as, a set of, as a set of doctrines, a set of things that, as a Buddhist, one is expected to believe. What is not, I think, often emphasized sufficiently is the, the Four Noble Truths are, in fact, four tasks to perform. Now, this becomes very clear when we look at the Buddha's first sermon, which is called the dhamma sutta the discourse on the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. The very first thing he taught probably a month or two after his awakening to the five, uh, his five former asc- companions in asceticism in the Deer Park in Sarnath. What I've been doing recently um, on the courses and, and workshops we've been leading here in the United States, we've been here for about a month now in Barrie, New York and new mexico um, is that i've been asking the audience somewhat blind um, i've read out a couple of passages but left one factor as x and asked them to guess what x is whoever in the past the present or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to x as long as my this is the Buddha speaking, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about X, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. Now this is a very these passages are very key passages in which the Buddha describes and defines uh, quite exactly what it was that he woke up to. What was it that constituted his awakening? It's quite rare that anybody guesses what X is. And this is amongst people who have been practicing the Dhamma and meditating for many, many years. Usually the answer is uh, nirvana or reality or the truth or uh, dependent origination, or selflessness, or emptiness, or the nature of mind, whereas in fact none of those are correct. Uh, The answer is, and I'll read out the text, whoever in the past, the present, or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in the world. Now, what these um, passages uh, do is that they somehow subvert or undermine the idea that the Buddha's uh, experience beneath the Bodhi Tree, the awakening, the enlightenment, was something con- that concerned a kind of radical uh, insight into the nature of reality itself a quasi-mystical experience comparable perhaps to what we would find in the Vedanta tradition or in Meister Eckhart or in Rumi some kind of shattering revelation about the nature of, of being the nature of truth the nature of God and that would of course have been the case in the pre existent Indian culture. In the Upanishads, liberation, moksha, is understood quite explicitly as achieving this union between your own deepermost spiritual essence called Atman and the greater transcendent reality of God itself, Himself, Brahman. That is the nature of awakening. In fact, except they don't use the word awakening or enlightenment. They use the word moksha, liberation. And this seems to be a a tendency that is not just, I think, found in classical religious writing, but it seems to be an almost instinctive yearning of human beings that there is the possibility of experiencing something radically other than what we know in this phenomenal, conditioned, impermanent, Dukkha-laden world. And the Buddha's just not playing that game at all. Um, He is uh, acknowledging that what he has woken up to has got nothing to do with anything transcendent, nothing to do with any kind of unitary truth, any kind of divine oneness but it has to do with a complex relationship to four truths, not one, but four. And I go, I don't think that's accidental. He's woken to four truths, but these truths he then presents not as sort of things to understand, but rather as actions to perform. And in fact, if I read out the second passage I cited in slightly more detail the text says as long as my vision and knowledge was not entirely clear about the 12 aspects of the four truths not just four, not one truth but four and not four but 12 aspects of four so the buddha seems to be moving in the opposite direction from a concern with oneness or unity or truth or reality or the deathless, or the unconditioned, all with capital letters at the front, of course, but rather to an entirely new uh, relationship or engagement with the suffering of the phenomenal world. So what are these 12 aspects of the Four Truths? The Buddha lists them quite explicitly in the passage that precedes the one I just cited. He says, such is suffering... It can be fully known, it has been fully known, such is craving or grasping, it can be let go of, it has been let go of. Such is cessation, and by cessation he means the cessation of grasping, not the cessation of suffering, the cessation of grasping, that's quite clear, it can be experienced, You can know it for yourself. The word in Pali literally means you can see it with your own eyes. It's something you can see for your own eyes, the stopping of craving. And it has been experienced. And such is the path, the Eightfold Path. It can be cultivated. It can be brought into being. And it has been brought into being. So in this passage, we can see that each truth has three aspects. In other words, The truth is to be recognized, such is suffering. It can be performed, you can can do something in relationship to it, it can be fully known, and that is something that you can complete and accomplish. It has been fully known. So the four truths refer not to four facts, but to three tasks, each of which needs to be recognized, performed, and accomplished, and the Buddha says quite clearly it's only when he had done all of that that he could consider himself to be awake. In other words, he's describing his awakening not as any kind of of privileged state in which he has had a a kind of non-ordinary glimpse of some higher reality or some ultimate truth, Remember, again, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha never once uses the word ultimate truth or relative truth. Those terms came along later and, in a sense, were the biggest conceptual disaster that ever happened to Buddhism (laughs) because they split reality into two. The real, real reality, which is emptiness or selflessness or something, as opposed to the conventional relative truths (laughs) of the world. The Buddha doesn't think in that way. He never speaks in that way. Instead, he presents his awakening as an awakening not to a state or to a deeper truth, but to a process, a process of actions, a fully knowing of suffering, which leads to a letting go of grasping. And the letting go of grasping leads to the stopping, or moments at least, at which that Grasping stops and in the stopping of that grasping there emerges the possibility of another way of life which engages the whole of our humanity. How we see the world, think about it, speak, act, work, focus our energies through our efforts, our commitments, our resolve, attend with mindfulness and recollection to what's happening and to concentrate and focus our minds in meditation. The Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, as we saw from the analogy of the city, is something that leads to the Four Noble Truths. So what we we find in these passages is a description not of arriving at some sort of final enlightened state, of some transcendent truth, but rather we find an ongoing, endless feedback loop of life presenting itself to us, our embracing it, our knowing it, which leads to a deepening of our experience of this world and of our own inner world, which leads to a reordering of our priorities. We're no longer concerned just with getting what we like, getting rid of what we don't like, in other words, desire and hatred, and that allows the conditions for such habits to begin to fall away, to be let go of, to stop, and in that stopping, a space opens up in which we enter the stream, what is called sotapati, stream entry. But when the Buddha asks, what is the stream? He's talking to Sariputta. He says, Sariputta, we talk of the stream. What Sariputta is the stream, and Sariputta replies, the stream is the noble eightfold path. And so the stream entry is what occurs between the third and the fourth noble truths. The fourth noble truth is the stream, and it's not just some spiritual, some spiritual practice, some spiritual inner thing. It has to do with everything that constitutes your life on this earth. So we find, therefore, that the, the, the Eightfold Path leads to the Four Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path. We find a process. We find a living stream of practice, of thinking, of working, of acting, which, when performed in community, when performed together with those who are similarly committed, creates the the seedbed, the beginnings of another kind of culture, another kind of civilization. Not some remote sort of mystical transcendence, but rather another way of living together in this world in direct response to the suffering of this life and engaging with that. Engagement is not some kind of optional extra for some Buddhists, engaged Buddhists. Engagement is there right in the practice of the First Noble Truth itself. That the fully knowing of suffering is not just about knowing in your own anxieties and neuroses, that's part of it. But as we extend our knowing of suffering, it goes way beyond one's own personal discomforts and so forth and extends to the suffering of the world itself in all aspects. That, that is what is meant by fully knowing it, fully. Both with depth, by understanding these things from a deeper space within oneself of mindfulness, of concentration, but also of width and breadth. So wisdom, compassion, love are implicit within the First Noble Truth, the practice of the First Noble Truth, which leads to another way of living. And that, I suppose, um, and again I've covered a lot of texts and materials and perhaps not in sufficient detail, um, is what constitutes the basis of my understanding of what a secular Dharma might be, one that is concerned with the suffering of this seculum of this world, of this age, of this time. And just as the Buddha, in his age and his world and his time, presented this, I think, extremely coherent but also profoundly challenging uh, teaching, I think one of the great challenges for our time is to go back to the sources of the Buddhist tradition in order to rethink Buddhism from the ground up and to do so in such a a way that we find for ourselves a personal and a a communal framework uh, for living in this way in which our deepest potentials are realized and in which we are able individually and collectively to respond to the extraordinary suffering that we only have to open today's newspaper to know about. So it's 11 o'clock now. You've been listening to me for an hour. Um, Let's have a period of of walking outside, Um, trying to keep silent through this morning session and likewise the afternoon session, although we won't have silence during the lunch break. I'd suggest that we go outside or we stay in here if we find it too cold or anything outside and just slowly practice walking, or if we prefer, just to sit on a bench just to try to gather our attention. And then we'll meet back here at half past eleven. Will there be a bell? Yes. Yes, there'll be a bell. So at about twenty-five past eleven, there'll be a bell. We'll gather back in here. We'll have a period of meditation and we'll conclude this morning with a discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org